Thank you for choosing this podcast for the BJSM community. I'm Daniel Friedman, and today I'm delighted to be speaking with Dr. Alison Grimaldi, a terrific physiotherapist known internationally for her expertise in the management of hip, groin, and lumbopelvic pain and dysfunction. She has over 25 years of clinical experience, did her PhD in this area, and recently published a great paper in the BMJ, which we will talk about today. Alison, thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks so much for the invitation. It's great to follow up from that last podcast and hopefully let the listeners know, you know what we've been up to since then. Earlier this year, the BMJ published the results from your clinical trial, the LEAP trial, that looked at approaches for managing gluteal tendinopathy pain. Could you start by giving our listeners a brief overview of the trial? So what we did is we took, we ended up with 204 patients. So they were randomized into three groups. We ruled out anyone who didn't have um, the symptoms uh, that sounded like they have had gluteal tendinopathy. Then they were brought in for a physical screen. And then if we had a positive on that, we uh, sent them through for imaging and we ruled out any other significant musculoskeletal issues, particularly um, hip OA, and they also were physically screened for any significant lumbar spine issues or hip joint uh, related pain. So on the MRI, they needed to have changes within their gluteal tendons. So once they passed all those criteria, then they were randomized into one of three groups. So education and exercise, or a single cortisone injection, or the wait and see group. Could you explain a bit about what each treatment group received? So the wait and see group just received, uh, they came and saw a physiotherapist once who basically talked them through the information pamphlet, answered any questions and encouraged them not to uh, take on other treatments within the trial time. The cortisone group just saw a radiologist, uh, had the injection and was provided the information pamphlet. And then we had the education and exercise group. So the education and exercise group received 14 sessions with a physiotherapist one-on-one over eight weeks. So the education uh, was information about the condition, um, how to manage the condition effectively, and that was specifically around load management techniques, which I'll go through in detail and then um, they had as I said um, 14 sessions where they also included exercise so the first two sessions were really education and starting them on their exercise program so getting them some good education on their exercise performance for their home exercises and developing that for home and then the following six weeks so they did one a week for the first two weeks then six weeks where they came in twice a week and did one-on-one exercise with the physio where they did their home exercise progressed their home exercise but importantly did some heavier loading uh, with the physio that was uh, supervised loading and added some uh, resistance. And out of the three which treatment group performed best? So we had two primary outcomes at eight weeks and 52 weeks. So at that eight, week, eight weeks point, education and exercise uh, returned better results than the cortisone injection and the wait and see in terms of success on the global rating of change and also in terms of pain on a pain NRS scale. And then at 52 weeks, again, the education exercise group was significantly better than the other two groups. Again, 
maintaining that outcome of about an 80% uh, success rate. The differences in pain severity between the education exercise and the cortisone group weren't significant at 52 weeks because uh, the pain levels had sort of come down significantly over time. So there were only about two out of 10 at that time. But with the global rating of change, um, that was uh, maintained throughout that whole 12 months. Can you tell us about the education that the patients in the education and exercise group received? The load management advice that we give to patients is uh, some information about the condition um, and then um, load management information. So particularly around reducing compression. And we know from the literature that uh, adduction is uh, particularly um, a position of the hip that particularly increases compression at the lateral hip. And this is due to the wind-up of the iliotibial band across the greater trochanter and compressing those soft tissues at the greater trochanter. So a lot of the advice is around trying to reduce the amount of time uh, spent in positions of compression. So on a daily basis, that might include education on sitting postures, so reducing time spent with your knees crossed, uh, standing, avoiding those postures where you hang on one hip in hip adduction. They, uh, patients were provided on the trial gait education, uh, gait retraining and stair climbing uh, retraining. This is important as well. So with walking, we often see that patient in that postmenopausal group who's put on weight and decides that they want to lose some weight. So they take up walking and they do their power walking and striding out and hitting the ground hard, doing lots of hill walking and maybe doing hill walking back to back days, uh, really trying to get their weight down and then develop this lateral hip pain. So some clear, clear information on uh, changing their walking can really help to settle that down. So uh, large strides we know will uh, increase that uh, force that goes up to the hip as they hit the ground. So education on reducing stride length and just walking a little bit more softly as they, uh, as they walk. So often some simple advice with stair climbing about using a rail opposite the affected side and just walking with their feet a little bit wider as they go up the steps, trying to avoid side shifting of their pelvis can be really useful. So those function, though, that functional information is very useful. And then other things that might expose them to adduction is stretching. Now, a lot of patients that come to us in the clinic and who came on the trial would report that they had been doing a lot of stretching, whether because they just instinctively thought that would help or because someone had told them that that was a good thing to do. Um, so the types of stretching that may be provocative because of the adduction compression issue is um, the ITB type stretches. So pushing the hip into a position of adduction um, in standing, either in hip flexion or extension. And then also gluteal stretching, the type of um, stretches that include flexion and hip adduction uh, are provocative. So we encourage people to uh, avoid stretching. With the other advice, uh, it is important the way it's uh, that information is provided to a patient. So we don't want to make them fear avoidant. Uh, so it's... 
um, phrased in the way that, you know, the more time you spend in these positions, you might make your tendon grumpy. So it's not like if you put your hip in that position, it's going to cause any damage. But if you spend a lot of time in those positions, it may provoke your pain. So you can take charge of that by reducing the amount of time you spend in those positions, and that should help you get on top of your pain. So most patients we found uh, actually find that um, empowering rather than finding that um, fearful for them um, because they know that, oh, okay, now I understand why I'm aggravated after a day of, you know, sitting with my legs crossed or standing at work always in those hip hanging positions or after doing heaps of those stretches. So sleeping on that side can be provocative. So uh, we usually encourage people to stay off that side or if they do tend to keep waking up on that side, using an eggshell mattress overlay or something soft um, can help. Uh, so they won't wake up as quickly if they do roll onto that side. If they're sleeping on the other side, then if the top hip is dropped down into adduction, then they will still uh, wake up because of pain of the compression of being in a position of adduction. So if we put a pillow, uh, quite a thickish sort of pillow between their knees and ankles, that helps reduce the adduction. Lying on their back can be quite a useful position as long as they avoid crossing their ankles. But on their back, uh, there's you know, minimal compression. Some people find it uncomfortable sleeping on their back for long periods. A pillow under the knees can help with that to just make their hips and back more comfortable. But probably the most a uh, successful position we've found uh, for people with this condition is a position we call quarter from prone, which is basically if you lie on your side and then you roll your body halfway towards lying onto your tummy, um, then you're sort of halfway between side lying and, and tummy lying. So if you're lying on the affected side, which usually works best, straighten out that bottom leg and then because you're rolled forward, you actually don't have your pressure on the greater trochanter. You've got your weight sort of on the anterolateral thigh. Then we also just get them to put a pillow sort of wedged under that top thigh and they may need another one under their tummy as well. And this just means that their weight is sort of supported by the pillows rather than their weight sort of hanging on their hip, you know, or pelvis or lumbar spine. So that's often the most successful position for them. And so those those sorts of tips about um, the way you walk, the way you stand, the way you sit um, and how you position yourself at nighttime can make a, a big difference uh, very rapidly to people's pain. Alison, could you also talk us through the exercises that the patients were given to perform as part of that treatment group? Sure. So with the education exercise group, they received uh, a home program and they also did the exercises uh, in the clinic with the physio. So the first exercises that were provided were isometric hip abduction exercises. So there was two different positions they were provided on the trial. The first one was in a supine position, uh, pillow underneath the knees just to sort of relax again the hips and back, um, a firm belt rather than a band um, around the distal thighs just above the knees so the hips were positioned uh, sorry the knees were positioned just a little bit wider than the hips so that we avoided any compression um, by being in a little bit of abduction so then the patients were asked to just slowly slowly and gently sort of ramp up that contraction of 
pushing the hips into abductions. So to them it was explained like doing the side splits or, you know, just taking up the pressure in the belt and pushing slowly out into that belt. So depending on what their endurance was like, we might get them to hold for five or ten seconds. Uh, they'd do that ten times in a row and they'd do that morning and evening. Then during the day there's also opportunity to do some standing isometrics and that just helped us get a little bit more of that isometric loading in during the day. So the standing version is standing with, again, your feet a little wider uh, than your hips so that we're in that slightly abducted position, reduces the compression. And then patients were asked to uh, just push against the floor, basically. So the floor was their resistance and they were thinking about doing the side splits. So gently ramping up that contraction, um, pushing out to the side, again, holding for that 10 seconds or so. So they do um, a few of these in a row, you know, at least a couple of times a day. Then we went on to uh, uh, bridging and squatting progressions. So bridging progressions, most people would be fairly aware of what a bridge is. Sometimes it's called a pelvic lift. So basically lying on your back, uh, knees bent and uh, feet fairly close to your bottom. So it's not as much a hamstring exercise. It's more biased towards their gluteals. Um, just getting the patient to consciously recruit their um, glute max, push down into their heels and lift their bottom off the bed. So we did uh, made the exercise slow so that we got um, as much time under tension as we could. So about three seconds up and three seconds down. So they did double leg. Uh, then they progressed on to offset bridge. So offset bridge is just one foot closer to the bottom, the other foot further away. So this time the close side foot does most of the, or the close side buttock does most of that work. Uh, then we progressed on to single leg versions where they might um, uh, go up through two legs and then peel one foot off the ground and maintain their pelvis level and then ultimately one foot off the ground and doing a single leg bridge. So the progression was um, the exercise were progressed determined by their exercise performance. So once that they could get a good glute contraction, control their their pelvis and their femoropelvic alignment appropriately, uh, then that they'd progress on as long as they were tolerating that from a pain perspective. So we used that pain monitoring model as well. So um, any significant pain during um, or after delayed pain, then they may not have coped with that uh, with that exercise so we'll pull them back a little bit so that's our bridging then we had squat type uh, progressions so this would start with a, a double leg squat teaching them good alignment and control and patterning in two leg squat techniques so it was more a, a bottom back type squat to try to really get those glutes going then again we progressed to an offset progression which is just one foot uh, slightly behind the other so it's like a single leg squat with just a little bit of assistance um, and weight shared with the back foot now these exercises there's pictures and descriptions of them all um, in the supplement um, on bmj as well so you can check them out there so that's the offset squat then we did uh, single leg stance so standing on one leg and a step up uh, was the final progression now with all of these uh, progressions. There was particular attention to controlling that femoropelvic um, position, so really avoiding those that 
positions of excessive adduction. Now to achieve that you usually require some hand support. So we let patients hold on initially to allow them to share that load to optimise their alignment control. Once they got good at that then we reduced their hand support and removed that hand support. And then again the progressions were just determined by their um, exercise performance and their pain. And as long as they were coping without any pain aggravation, we progressed them on. So then there was one other type of exercise that I think is particularly important and this is frontal plane loading so we may have started someone with something uh, simple like some controlled side stepping but then very quickly we put them into um, added resistance so adding that external resistance so in the clinic when they came twice a week and did exercises with the physio they did that resisted exercise on uh, a pilates reformer or a spring resisted uh, platform like the TWS slider so the exercises that we performed were in Australia we call it skating uh, it's often called different things around the world but it's bilateral abduction so you're pushing equally with both legs pushing the legs out to the side against that spring resistance so we did a couple of different versions of of those uh, which again is described uh, in the paper so that was nice, slow, heavy loading. We did use RPE for our exercises, so rate of perceived exertion. And I do think this is really important that we make sure that we progress people and make sure that they're working hard enough, particularly if we're trying to change the load capacity um, in the target muscle group, which in this case is the hip abductors. We have to make sure that we're progressing them to the point where they're finding it difficult to engender some change um, in the, the tissues and hopefully in that load capacity. And so if you use just a simple 10-point scale where zero is no effort and, and 10 is maximal effort, then we don't want them just working at that moderate level, although that's a good place to start and just test what their response is in terms of pain. And if that's all good, then we want to progress them to that hard to very hard level. And on the trial, we did uh, monitor that and patients were progressed to that hard to very hard level. If that spring resistance stopped being hard enough, then we progressed them uh, onto the next spring. And that was the same with the other, the bridging and the uh, squat progressions as well. If they were finding the exercises easy and they had good control uh, and they had uh, no pain with it, that's another reason why we'd want to progress that exercise. So that's the skating in the clinic. And then uh, at home, their home version was to do that with a band around their ankle and something slidey under, the, under one foot. At home, it's a bit difficult to do a bilateral abduction because the band isn't really strong enough to pull you pull your legs back together and some people will overload their inner thighs. So we tend to do it as a single leg squat, uh, sorry, a single leg skate. So start down in a bit of a mini squat position. Then you've got one foot. So say if you have a, a polished floor, um, have your foot on a, a hand towel or a face cloth or something like that band around the ankles and then we're just pushing one leg slowly out into abduction and controlling it back again so uh three times a week then patients on the trial were exposed to some heavy slow loading so twice a week with the physio and then once a week at home they 
doubled the amount of exercise they were doing in their home exercise program, so did uh, more reps and um, did more of their band-resisted exercise till they felt like they were working at that hard to very hard level. So we were trying to achieve that um, higher RPE three times a week to try to get some change in that load capacity. You mentioned before that the exercises are available on the BMJ website and Alison, we know that you also have a fantastic website and a lot of this information is available online for the physio community. Could you tell us what else is available on your website? Great. Yes. So there's heaps of information on my website, which is just dralisongrimaldi.com and that's just DR Doctor. So there's a publications um, page there that has heaps of free resources on um, all of the papers that I've been involved in, in, including um, a number of papers that have come out of the the LEAP trial. Um, I've got some little videos uh, talking about uh, those um, papers as well. And then I've also got online education and um, ebooks and there's a particular ebook that is specifically about gluteal tendinopathy and managing that and associated with that there's also free access to videos that take you through the diagnostic test for gluteal tendinopathy and also all of those exercises that we talked about have actually got videos there for you so if you want to see those exercises in action um, you can go to the website and have a look at the the ebooks and have a look at all those exercises in action. Great. And Alison, we look forward to seeing you in Vancouver in September of this year for your hip and groin pain masterclass. Could you tell our listeners a bit about what they'll be missing out on for the workshop and where else you'll be teaching come 2019? Yes, yeah, so 2019, I'll actually be heading over to Europe. So I'll be going to the World Congress of um, uh, f- physical therapy uh, in Switzerland, which I'm, which I'm looking forward to. And while I'm over there, because it is quite a long way uh, from Australia, I'll be doing a bit of a teaching tour around Europe. So I'll be visiting London, uh, the Netherlands, uh, Belgium, uh, France, uh, going to Paris again, and uh, probably Dublin as well. So there's a few places I'll be visiting and um, doing some courses um, while I'm there, which will, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. And before we let you go, if our listeners would like to find out more about you and follow what you're up to, besides your website, where else can they go? So with respect to social media, Twitter is the best way to follow me. So um, my Twitter handle is at Alison Grimaldi, so you can follow me there. Great. Alison, thank you again. You've been listening to a BGSM podcast with Dr. Alison Grimaldi. You can read Alison's latest paper on the LEAP trial in the BMJ today, and we will also provide a link to it in the show notes. You can follow BJSM and stay up to date via the usual social media channels or download the BJSM app where you can find more podcasts, our latest articles and other content. As always, we hope you have a physically active day.